The Old Testament lesson is from Daniel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. The epistle lesson is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 25. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks Thanks be be to God. We rise for the reading of the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel lesson for this Sunday is from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, and this will also serve as the basis for the message this morning. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, 
and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not, not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not yet it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you, well, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for this morning's message is the gospel lesson that I read to you a few moments ago from Mark chapter 13. In their book, Is It Real When It Doesn't Work?, Doug Morin and Barb Shuren recount, towards the end of the 19th century, Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel awoke one morning to read his own obituary in the local newspaper. It said, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before, died a very rich man. Well, it was actually Alfred's older brother who had died. A newspaper war reporter had bungled the epitaph. But the account had a profound effect upon Nobel. He decided that he wanted to be known for something other than developing the means to kill people efficiently and for amassing a fortune in the process. And so Nobel initiated the Nobel Prize, the award for scientists and writers who foster peace. Nobel said, every man ought to have a chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. Few things will change us as much as looking at our life as though it is finished. If this is your last day on earth, what kind of epitaph will be written about you? What would you want to be written about you? And what steps might you take to change it if it needs to be changed? Several years ago, I was a guest speaker at the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Campus Chaplain's Retreat. The keynote speaker for the event was dressed very casually for his presentation. He was dressed in shorts and he wore a t-shirt. And on the t-shirt it said, Jesus is coming. Everybody, look busy. Most of us would agree that people are pretty busy. We are busy. Very busy. So busy that we might not even stop to ask ourselves, 
why am I busy? And what am I busy with? And are the things that I'm busy with truly important and of lasting value? Herod the Great was a very busy man. Herod wanted to leave a legacy of himself to the world, and so Herod busied himself with the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And what an impressive structure it was. Construction began in about 20 B.C., so it's about 16 years before the birth of Jesus. And the construction was completed in around 64 A.D., about 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection. The temple and its surroundings covered some 26 acres. The temple was immense. For example, the eastern colonnade known as Solomon's Porch was a triple row of 288 concrete pillars standing 36 feet high. The colonnade that lay to the south was called the Royal Porch. Three aisles of pillars with the central pillar rising to a height of 92 feet. The Nicanor Gate, leading to the Court of Men, was made entirely of bronze. The gate was so heavy that it was said that 20 men were needed to open it. And the sound of its opening was the signal that the day had begun for the people of Israel. The temple was an object of stunning beauty and awe, with only the best and most precious metals used in its construction. A rabbi from Babylon who saw it observed, the man who has not seen the temple of Herod has no idea of what a really beautiful building is. This temple was Herod's pride and joy. It was his lasting monument to the world. This temple was the pride and the joy of the people of Israel as well. I mean, it was the house for their God. This mammoth building assured them of God's protection from their enemies, for they assumed that God was in their midst. This temple was a source of national and spiritual pride. And now here is this project that took approximately 80 years to construct, a lifetime endeavor for Herod the Great and for those who followed him. And yet, what does Jesus say about this very temple? In verses 1 and 2 of the gospel lesson, we read, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. You see all these great buildings, replied Jesus. Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. You can just imagine the disciples when they heard Jesus say this, thinking like, you know, looking at these massive columns and saying, yeah, right, Jesus. (laughs) Do you see how massive this building is? This is God's temple. He would never let something happen to his dwelling place. Oh, how the disciples must have remembered Jesus' words and marveled when in 70 A.D., six years after the temple was completed, it was reduced to rubble. That's right, the Roman general Titus stormed Jerusalem and he destroyed the temple and its precincts. 
how very sad. Herod's lifelong pursuit was a waste. Not so much because he built a temple for God, or actually it's probably more a temple to soothe his own vanity or satisfy his own vanity, but he and many of the people of Israel became so consumed, so preoccupied with the temple, with its construction, that they actually failed to worship the one for whom the temple was built. Herod's temple became a symbol of spiritual bankruptcy, the spiritual bankruptcy of the people of Israel. And the lone memorial of this temple that still stands today is the Wailing Wall, a memorial to their rejection of Christ as Savior. There's a warning for us in the temple's destruction. Are we so busy and preoccupied with things in our life that we fail to recognize that Jesus is in our midst. What might that temple be that you and I are building? Our all-consuming obsession. Might it be our career? Might it be our education? Might it be our house? Might it be our hobbies? Or maybe our health. These can all become our obsessions to the point that they elbow Jesus out of our life. Might our temple be our children, our grandchildren, maybe our retirement. For many today, the temple that they're building is their newfound sexuality. For others, it's trying to score a higher score on a video game. But there are many things out there in this world that are like our temples, like Herod's temple. They maybe serve our vanity, but they lead us away from Christ. You know, in and of itself, Herod's building a temple for the Lord isn't a bad thing, is it? I mean, how can you go wrong building a building for the Lord. But the tragedy is that the temple was a sign of his vanity. He literally wasn't doing it to bring glory to God. He's doing it to build glory for himself. And in so doing, he displaced God from his life. And the same is true for those of us who are constructing temples to basically satisfy our own vanity. They often become the central focus of our activity and the all-consuming passion of our heart, and they become our God. Jesus is warning us in our text today, don't let these things become your gods. You see, Jesus is coming. That's one of the key points of the gospel reading. The destruction of Herod's temple in 70 AD is an early sign of the beginning of the end. We are living in the end times and have been doing so for over 2,000 years. God has and he continues to provide us with the signs of the end of time. Such as, as Jesus mentions in our text, false teachers. There's going to be many that are going to come and say, I'm the Messiah. 
Or I had Jesus reveal something to me and now I'm going to reveal it to you. And there will be many false teachers who will lead many away. And then Jesus says there will be wars and there's going to be rumors of wars and there's going to be earthquakes and there's going to be famines and we might add on pandemics. And there's going to be persecution of Christians. Even family members are going to turn against one another. And through it all, the proclamation of the gospel is going to be preached to all the nations. These are some of the signs at the end of times. And Jesus gives us these signs because they serve as reminders to all of us of Jesus' imminent return. These signs remind us that everything that we have, everything that we've worked for, maybe the very things we've obsessed over, can be swept away. They can be taken away from us in a matter of minutes, and even seconds. These are signs that God gives us to keep us awake, to keep us ever vigilant, to, to help us to reevaluate again and again the priorities of our life because as we go through life, we can kind of lose sight of what is truly important in life. We may have seen it at one time, but for some reason or another, we've directed our eyes elsewhere and our heart elsewhere. And so these signs at the end of time are Jesus' way of helping us to kind of reevaluate our life and change the course of our life before we die or before Christ returns so that we can rewrite our epitaph if it needs to be written before our eternal destiny is written in stone. You know, there are two grand monuments that we would do well to build our life around or upon and they are the cross of Christ and the empty tomb of Jesus. They have eternal significance. The cross of Jesus testifies to our being forgiven of all of our sin by God. John Bowring was a man who lived at the end of the 18th century and into the early 19th century. And a story is told of Bowring who was sailing to Macau when he saw a village that had been reduced to rubble because of a typhoon. But one lone wall had withstood the typhoon. Towering over the wreckage was a bronze cross. And Bowring never forgot that image. And later in life when he was penning the words of a hymn, that image came to mind. And it's an image that we often sing about. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. When the woes of life o'ertake me, hopes deceive and fears annoy. Never shall the cross forsake me, blow it glows with peace and joy. Yes, we may have the temples in our life crumble all around us. But the one thing that will never crumble around us is the cross of Christ. 
the cross of Christ stands the test of time. It stands against all of the winds and the tsunamis and the typhoons of life that we experience. In the end, it's the cross that gives us the certainty of God's love and forgiveness, even as we go through the most devastating events in our life. The cross still reminds us of God's love and faithfulness to us and that our sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. Yes, the woes of life may overtake us. Hopes deceive and the fears will annoy. But the cross will never forsake us. That's where we find our peace and joy. The other monument we want to build our life around or on is, of course, Jesus' empty tomb. Jesus' empty tomb testifies to the hope of life everlasting that our risen Savior promises to us. I've probably told this story before, but in 1999, Sandra and I had the privilege of going to Israel and Jordan. And one of the highlights of the trip was on the very last day of the trip, and we went to the garden tomb. The tomb very much like that in which Jesus would have been laid after his death. And as we entered the tomb, our guide instructed us to look around. And he said, what do you see? And somebody in the crowd said, well, nothing. And he said the same was true on Easter morning. Jesus' tomb was empty. For we worship a resurrected and triumphant Lord. We worship a resurrected and triumphant Lord. Yes, sooner or later, death will come knocking on our door, won't it? As it's done for so many people in ages past. But Jesus' resurrection from the dead assures us that not even death itself can separate us from the love of God. Oh, everything else, when we die, will be given away. Some will be put in the second best sale and will sell the merchandise downstairs. Others that will be taken to the goodwill, some will be taken to the dump. People will look and go, what do I want with this? And those things that we once held so dear and that we worked our lives for, they're just a distant memory. But the one thing that remains is Jesus' promise that we live with him forevermore. That's what we build our lives on. The cross of Christ in the empty tomb. We live our lives in the end times, and, and so we, do, we live with vigilance and with action. That's what Jesus is calling, to, calling us to in this message today, in this sermon, in this gospel reading. And I like how the writer of the Hebrews kind of brings it all together in the epistle lesson that Carol read just moments ago. He says, because you're living in the end times, because you are living with the expectation that Jesus Christ is returning again soon, he says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, I might add, 
so that we're cleansed from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, a reference to holy baptism. So he says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. For he who promised is faithful. He who promised that he'll come back and take us to be where he is, is faithful and he will do it. And let us consider how we spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as is the habit of some. But instead, gathering together in person to encourage one another. And all the more, all the more, as you see the day of Christ approaching. Every person ought to have the chance to change his or her epitaph in the midstream of life. Maybe I'm speaking to someone today who needs to make that change, of course. Well, Jesus invites you to do so by redirecting your eyes and your heart, your life, to him, to his cross, to the empty tomb. May the remaining days and the years that the Lord grants us, by his grace, give us such an opportunity. Amen. And now may the peace of God that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.